Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind. Two crickets and a thorn tree. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Larimer, joined as ever by the other half of your hosts. Gabriel Krauser. Do, 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 do. I apologize in advance if you hear the thundering beat of the heavy rain, uh, which is was very briefly uh, smashing down on my on my uh, roof, and my roof is made of tin, and so it was very loud, but I think it stopped now. So hopefully it stays away for the rest of the show, and then comes back immediately after, because it was absolutely fantastic to be rained oh, on like that. Uh, you see, we, we are, I, I don't want to say emotional perverts, but we are slightly odd in that. <laughs> The rain is glorious and the thunder is awesome and the lightning is oh, sort of dazzling. It's wonderful. I was just driving back from the Johannesburg Country Club. Uh, it's, it's and like, you call me an like, aristocrat. It's like a name drop. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was just driving with my window open through the rain and really enjoying it. But then as I pulled into the suburbs, uh, the wind was blowing the jacaranda blossoms. And a jacaranda blossom smashed me in the face. I was slapped <laughs> by a jacaranda blossom. Dude, going at like 60Ks an hour plus the wind, it was quite feisty, little little uh, tickle, more than a tickle. <laughs> but And I feel, I feel like that does speak to this week. Like I think it's like stormy weather. It's hard to see the horizon, where things really going. Mm -hmm. But I dig it, man. Even being slapped by a jacaranda blossom feels kind of good. Yeah, well, at least now we know we're not just going to inevitably trudge into complete collapse and dysfunction. I mean, we might still, but at least it's not inevitable now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Not that it ever was necessarily, but you know what I mean, right? I know but, what you mean, man. There's, there's like a, there's, there's a, the ruling party, the, the party of Mandela, uh, has for the first time been put in a position where more people voted against it than for it in a nationwide election. It's historic. And it's the kind of thing that I think even if the ANC was doing really well, would would probably still have a good side to it, which is just, you know, keeping people fresh, keeping people on their toes is good. Yeah, look, uh, but especially with the ANC performing so poorly at local government level, right. it seems like reason responsiveness. I, I believe very firmly that you even if you've got a good government with the right ideology that they need to be kicked out every now and again because they can become very uh, i don't know what adjective to use here i guess i'm just going to go with my favorite silly <laughs> if you keep them very silly <laughs> and like kind of oozy uh, you get like a ooziness yeah. when you and, and corruption that. corruption inevitably sets it i mean I, I so i don't know the details of the story so i'm not commenting necessarily on this story um, but in the, in this the is UK, so Trumpian. No, I have to say, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not saying, gonna I'm tell the story. I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so, so I know the Conservative Party in the UK is currently having a couple of corruption scandals. Now, I don't know if they're true or not, uh, or but I, I do know that the Daily Mail is reporting them as though they are definitely true, and the word sleazy is being thrown about. Mm. And it strikes me that this is the kind of thing that tends to happen when you've been in government for a long time. And it also uh, strikes me as the kind of thing that when you've lost the Daily Mails, the Tories, uh, you're not you're not on a good path. <laughs> and so, it's very scary. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a, look, and, and this would terrify the absolute hell out of me if Corbyn was still leading the Labour Party. Uh, but thankfully he's not. 
Right. Uh, not that the Labour Party is great these days, but Nah, dude, Starmer is <sighs> such a step up. Yeah, no, that that's true. That's true. <laughs> but is it's it's a bit like sort of is Starmer really, you know, truly representative of the party? I mean, he's had to fight the the Corbynites are still sort of lurking there in the shadows, uh, waiting to produce some other horrendous, awful communist lunatic. <laughs> Which yeah, is dude, a bit I was of a telling- shame. I was telling Nick in the week, I saw a friend of mine uh, in Kensington, Johannesburg, which is like kind of a hotbed for diod old lefties who sort of, you know, I had a friend on, on the Kensington WhatsApp group who said a couple of years ago, guys, I just want to ask a question. Is expropriation without compensation a good thing or not? And they try to kick him off the group. Because they're like, how could you question whether or not this is a good thing? This is the best thing yeah. that will ever happen <laughs> to South Africa. <laughs> so they're pretty hardcore. Anyway, one of them posted on Facebook like a thing about Jeremy Corbyn. He was like, oh, Corbyn's so great. He's never changed. And it was a series of clips through the decades of Corbyn saying the same thing over and over again. And I was like, it's amazing. This guy thinks this is good. This guy's been yes, saying... He's- He's been Very. consistently wrong for his entire <laughs> political career. It's quite spectacular. And like with many different hairdos. Uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> and then yes. less and less hair and gray and gray hair, but the same. Like, have, I don't know. I like Corbin's brother at all. No. He's, he's a strange chap. Uh, he's kind of a bit sort of anti vaxxy. Um, I don't know his politics, but he always seems to be kind of on the fringes of things. And uh, he recently got headlines because, and you'll probably be quite pleased by this, uh, Neil Ferguson, the the the, the, the historian or the, the modeler, no, not the, the historian, modeler. the other one, the, the terrible modeler. Yes, I think it was him, and he stood up at a lecture this guy was giving and said, "You're a murderer! You've killed millions! You murderer!" <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and he that's, that, that's slightly wrong, but it's not, it's not that wrong. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, this is what I mean. He's he's a bit he's a bit um, fringy, but it's just kind of interesting because he's he's quite different from his brother in some ways, like in the explicit things they seem to be concerned about, and yet mm. he's quite diff- uh, He's quite similar in that they're both sort of weirdos from the fringes. <laughs> Did I mean I quite like the Peter Hitchens Christopher Hitchens thing uh, yeah. of the brothers, where Christopher Hitchens started out as a Trotskyite of you know, but like very careful to say you know I'm a communist, but really I'm a Trotskyite, and really I'm like from the Geneva Brussels Trotsky branch of the sub branch of the sort of Soviet uh, splinters, and nevertheless he really he really was a left, and then. Of course, by the time he died, he was like a neocon who wanted America to invade every country it could afford to invade to secure <laughs> property rights and free speech and secularism and all kinds of things like that. I think he went way overcompensatory. Whereas Peter Hitchens kind of kept the same line throughout his whole life, which in a lot of ways is more boring and sometimes is wrong. Like he's, I, I think sometimes his Christian conservatism um, puts him in an awkward place about some civil liberties. Uh, but in general, quite good. And an interesting test case where like not because he wasn't as gifted with words, he didn't chase down the Bon Mott. 
And I think there is right. something very scary about about people who are talented with words is they like seek out that phrase or that outrageous statement that just encapsulates mm -hmm. something that's almost true, but is an, ultimately an exaggeration, but it's so perfectly put, it's mordant, it sticks to your mind. Um, yes. And then it's it sticks to their own character. Deadly way that writers can sort of destroy nuance um, uh, mm. in their creation of their narratives. Yeah, right. and, they're, and they're something that's, poetry. That's true enough that people believe it, but not not actually true enough that it's necessarily helpful. Yeah, and then <laughs> they get stuck to it, and then they kind of it, it it is a dangerous thing about thinking out loud, is that you might end up changing your own mind for the sake of poetry. And I think and I think that is sort of one of the best things that can happen. Like often it works out really well, but it's a little bit like evolution. It's like a mutation. For every time that it works out really well, a, a gift of phrase just cements a new really good idea in like a shareable, memeable way that, that sort of helps the world converse, helps people engage with each other in a more reasonable way. For every time that happens, there's a mutation that just is very bad. <laughs> and right. kind of right. like you've suddenly got like 17 toes and you're still trying to walk around on two legs. It doesn't work. <laughs> So anyway. uh, we should probably, we're, so the reason we're not talking about the election right now is because we've talked about the election, I believe the correct phrase in the circumstances, ad nauseum. Uh, yeah, over the well put. Past couple of days. <laughs> um, oh, done, my Lord. Uh, big number of podcasts and things on it. And yeah, I think we're both a little bit over it, but we could probably right say something about, yeah. yeah, yeah, everything. Um we could probably say something about the coalition. So as we're recording this on Sunday night, uh, John Steen Hayes has just said the DA won't save the ANC from itself and it won't go into coalition with the EFF. And that to me seems very good. Yeah, I agree. I think it's I think it's a hard pull to swallow. Like, Well, because it means it's <laughs> if, if you live in Joburg, as uh, both of us do, kind of sucks to be us because municipal governance has not a single chance of getting much better in the next uh in fact it's probably going to get worse because i think the anc is only going to be able to hold the city with the eff well so how does it play out though because i mean i had this amazing thing where i was chatting with a friend yesterday about coalition politics mm. and this guy by the way one of the most successful young professionals in the country he as it happens i got the anglo-american scholarship to go to uct is like the only all-race scholarship that gives you a free ride uh and then when i left to go to princeton uh, doo -doo -doo, uh he <laughs> they, they then had an open scholarship and he and he's the dude who got it and we'd already been friends it's going to dicky he's extreme the last deal he worked on was like five billion us dollars uh he's he's a smarty pants he's in a he's in a this is all to say he was completely wrong even like quite smart successful people can be completely wrong he was like no, dude, if the ANC and Action, if DA and Action SA get together, they've got a majority in Johannesburg. And I was like, that's not true. And he was like, yeah. but also, and, and also, like, if the ANC and the EFF get uh, together, then they'll have a majority. And I was like, well, that's also uh, not true. And also, your maths doesn't even add up. And he was like, no, I promise you, I promise you, bro. So I was like, okay, well, we've got Google. <laughs> <laughs> and while he's looking it up, he was like, no, man, I can't believe you didn't know this. If the Action SA and the DA get together, they've got a majority. Um, anyway, neither of those two clubs have a majority. Um, right. Both of them would have to rely effectively on 
So many rats and mice. In fact, I think basically Action SA and the DA couldn't get together without also having the EFF or kind of banding together everyone else. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that'll work. And yeah, there's, there, are, there are definitely some problems with that. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> this is this, the, that's the sort of upside here, which is that um, it's likely that ANC and the EFF are going to, you know, actually be handing out the positions and controlling everything. But here's the thing. If they try to, say, pass something through the legislature, which says, you know, private property is hereby abolished, they probably won't be able to cobble together a majority for it. So, okay, but here's, here's, a, here's a step further. And this is, this is a, a prediction that I want to qualify with like a nice Greek phrase, pro tanto, maybe it's Latin, which means as far as it goes, you know. Uh, and another way of putting that is um, I don't think this is more likely than not. I don't think there's more than a 50% chance of this. But I do think there's a significant enough chance, call it 20% or whatever, that it's nice to put on people's dashboards. And it's the following. So municipal legislatures, metro legislatures have to pass a budget. Yes. And you need a 50% majority, to 50 plus one to pass a budget. So right. what could happen in Joburg, you don't need that to elect a mayor or from their downstream to select positions. So the ANC and the EFF could together um, take control of the city. But then if they try and pass a budget, especially if it's kind of a silly budget, uh, to use Nicholas's very genteel uh, <laughs> way of deploying that term, um, then uh, they might not be able to pass it because right. most... Because the DA most, action essay won't vote for it. Yeah. And then, and more, and then the city has to be placed under administration. And then my understanding from the Structures Act is that the MEC uh, of finance, either within the municipality or someone in the provincial um office legislature actually um can and maybe has to call a snap election they have to i believe yeah so, so i say can uh, or have to because this kind of thing has happened at much smaller levels and they've sort of sometimes gotten away yeah, with not calling a snap election fudging, fast enough. the fudging of the rules in the next five years is going to be extreme yeah i think you're very right to flag that there was already a whole bunch of you know, and, and to be honest, um, let's just say parties tend to put their better people in in, in not, Parliament. Not in not so, the cities. And the yeah, and not the cities. And so you often get people who don't always know exactly what's going on or aren't the greatest legal eagles or are a little bit confused when they read the texts of, of rules and things. And They're that not only adds best. to the problem. Right. That only adds to the problem. <laughs> so, so, and and no. I think what's interesting about that is just to think briefly about the scenario where Johannesburg kind of becomes like the UK, where you you know you're supposed to have like national elections once every five years, but they've had like five <laughs> yes. elections in the last ten years uh, because you know things kind of work with the minority government for a while until there's just a point. Wait, one of two things happen, right? The one is that you table some bit of legislation, and it can just be a budget, but it could also be something else, um, where they're like, this is actually a bad idea, so we're going to resist this and hope that that actually builds momentum into a snap election that will mean that we gain more in the snap election yeah. than we have right now. Alternatively, yeah. you just look at the polling, 
and how the mood is changing, you know, something else happens. Like the oil price goes up further, the petrol price goes up, people are more grumpy, some deals falls through, there's a bad harvest, the commodity prices go down, interest rates go up, whatever. You know, I'm just saying something that's actually not the mayor's fault, but that yes. makes people grumpy and but people it has often end consequences. up. Right. It has, and then you're like, okay, well, now's the time we want to call a snap election. So now we'll just find some uh, pro schema, some, some excuse to do it, and then you do it. And yeah, I think that if, if we have a series of elections in Johannesburg, it's, it's interesting to try and think about who would be good for and who would be bad for. Like in a way, it seems like it would be really bad for the ANC because they have no budget at all. Uh, I think it would also be bad for the DA because they – I don't think they have a lot of money and they've been trying to um, – It would probably you know, be better for them than – uh, than it would be for, for I think, most other parties because they actually do have a, quite a lot of organizations. So you'll find that the That's smaller parties, like your beloved uh, your beloved Coke, for example, yes, like if they have to face another election right now, they're just going to be sitting there going, oh, no. <laughs> we have to compete for media attention again. Another so one. Yeah. And it's everyone's going to be focused on the big people again. And our voters have to be turned out. And there's only three of them. And one of them gets sick. It's a big problem. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is, that's not fair. I mean, it is fair, but it's not accurate. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, 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 it's going to be interesting. And, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a sort of dirty tricks kind of stuff as well. Uh, like, you know, uh, let's say that EFF and ANC want to pass a budget and then all of a sudden there's a massive protest outside the city council uh, by ANC and EFF people that prevents opposition people getting into the, the venue in sufficient numbers to vote on the bill down. and That kind of stuff is probably going to happen quite a lot. I mean, I remember when the DA got rid of the Josie at Work program. Uh, when I was there, the Josie at work guys showed up to, well, uh, intimidate us, basically. Um, it was quite something. Uh, I remember standing at a shattered glass door at the front of the Johannesburg Municipal Offices uh, behind an EFF councillor, an EFF and an IFP councillor, and we all dove in different directions as a tile flew past us <laughs> thrown by Josie at work protest. <laughs> it's exciting times. That is exciting. Uh, so there's going to probably be more of that. So yeah, um, what I'm saying is buy generator, buy insurance, buy gold. <laughs> buy gold. And it is, but I mean, I think also watch the wire. Like this is, this is where South African politics really starts looking a little bit like Rust Belt city level politics. Um, yes. This is where it gets real. Yeah. And things actually can happen. Yeah. Uh, and that's both good and bad because it also means that everyone's going to play harder. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a thing to look out for at the local level. I kind of want to hit my big idea up at the, at the national level. Right. So um, at the Institute, there are certain figures who probably i don't know apostles apostles of liberty shall we say uh and for sure one of them is helen susman and you know that's why two crickets and a thorn tree is two crickets and a thorn tree it's right, an homage to her being the cricket the lone the lone voice in 
South Africa's parliament for nearly two decades sort of calling for, for, for all adults to have the right to vote, regardless of their skin color. And that was alone cricket and thornty and was really good. And and so her her phrases and her actions and her writings and her values sort of you know, she's held up as a paradigm exemplar of, of how to do things, but she's not the only one. Um and and often the, the, the writers have this sort of phrase that underlies their 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 view and their contribution to how people looked at South Africa in ways that helped. So with John Kane Berman, it was the silent revolution. And his point there was that um, there was this very vocal revolution, the struggle, um, where political actors and uh, and you know famous people, one way or another, were calling to to end up apartheid, um, throwing rocks in the streets, and it was very exciting. And yeah, you know, getting locked up and packed by the cops and it was all drama and explosives and bullets and sex and awesomeness and terror and fear and all the all the big emotions the stuff that people make movies about right and like right. i watched this movie about um what was his name again uh the ravonia trial lawyer uh who oh, no, I've also forgotten. <laughs> this is terrible bears no dear no, he was the church no, guy. No, 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 he was the church guy. Um, How are we? This no, is awful. this is no, really bad. Says, but anyway. <laughs> it's a Sunday. Okay, guys, I'm sorry. This is what happens when you've been talking elections all week. You can't even remember like a mainstream. Yeah, it's uh, also 8 o'clock at night. <laughs> okay, so the point is that the silent revolution was different to the vocal revolution in the sense that it was built on cooperation and sort of uh, incrementalism rather than this kind of all or nothing thing. It was like, let's get a little bit forward here. Let's get a little bit forward here. And you could see it in the numbers of black people that were uh, moving into urban centers, of black people right. participating in, uh, in leveling up uh, layers of the economy. Um, the, the yeah, kind I, of I remember my, my grandfather, uh, I think he was in construction for a bit in like, when was it, the 50s? Somewhere around there. And he would hire... Uh, black workers to do jobs that were reserved for whites and then he would <laughs> have to he would do this thing where they, if and it's a sort of race inspector came he would suddenly tell them no no guys quick pretend like you're not doing the skilled work <laughs> <laughs> pick up a brick pick up a brick yeah the pick, up a brick. pick up a brick <laughs> that kind of thing what right a, what a sick bad world hey uh, also, I mean, I remember when I was younger, my dad explaining to me just how insane apartheid was, you know, sort of like trains going into a station so that they could let people of a certain race off and then coming out and going back in so that they could go on the other platform to let people of a different race off. And you just think, I mean, that's not working never, for anyone. That's like never mind the abuse and the racism and, and all these other things, which are, of course, terrible. But what a massive waste of time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's why that's why I, I really like to say apartheid was wicked and stupid. Because yes, I think if you yes. if you if you only see one side, then you miss part of how oh, bloody oh. anyway. So the point is the silent revolution was like a concept that was difficult to mainstream because any incremental improvements um uh sort of made it seem like apartheid is not as bad as it was five minutes ago 
or five years ago or whatever it is. Uh, and that to some people will sound like, oh, you're saying it's not that bad. So it's okay. We don't have to fight against it. And right. that is, that's not a reasonable leap, but it's like an emotional leap that you can see how some yes. people made that leap. So it is hard right. to talk about the silent revolution, but it is really important for the Institute to emphasize it. And I think it is important and not just the Institute, by the way, the Sowetan um, ran its nation building campaign and was denounced by the ANC as being sort of all kinds of terrible things. Uh, we're just saying, you know, it starts out um, with the 88 uh, piece by the then chief editor. Uh, what's, it, what's his name? Ag Agre Klaassens, black guy, but with a sort of colored sounding name. I grew up in a colored sounding suburb. Anyway, saying, you know, our, our journalists keep going around Soweto and asking people, who are your leaders? And uh, and depressingly, the answer is always someone in the ghoul. Um, and, you know, while it's important to respect political figures, like there's lots of there's lots of leaders in communities right now doing good work. Doctors, lawyers, priests, all kinds of all kinds of good people. Um, and we need to respect that for some nation building. We need to start thinking about what things look like after apartheid. And, they, and they've got to look like this, respecting more than just politics. You've got to respect people in your community that add value through like talent and hard work and, and nothing to do with violence or like an ideological agenda, just like straightforward stuff. Anyway, that was part of the silent revolution. I like the silent revolution as a phrase. Um, uh, well, it's, it's, it's the sort of... It's the it's the thing that makes totalitarian regimes have to become have to change over time because totalitarianism is inevitably a bit stupid. Uh, yeah. People have to pretend lots of things. People have to do lots of things that don't make sense. And in a lot of ways, apartheid was of course a totalitarian system because it reached yeah. into totality of people's lives. And yet, they they basic they either had to turn it into the gulag system, or they basically had to let it go. Yeah, because, because the silent revolution people, was the one people were going to really... ignore it in the end. Yes, yeah, yeah. and, and the they, people they, they sort of babies... tried a little bit of gulagging, but they just never did enough to, you know, mm. keep their system alive. So, so the flip side of the silent revolution is is the people's war. Dr. Anthea Jeffrey, the sort of meticulous study of, um, of violence between uh, groups that are trying to overthrow apartheid. So they're all on the same side in that they're against apartheid, but they're also against each other in that they're like, well, when apartheid goes, we want to rule. And so the main ones are like the ANC and IFP, but there's also Zappo and PAC and so on. And uh, and unfortunately, you know, uh, a hell of a lot of brutal destruction by the ANC gets given a free pass because, again, criticizing this sounds like, oh, well, then you're saying apartheid should stay. Because you're saying one of the chief agents trying to struggle against apartheid is, is doing some bad things. It's like, no, that doesn't follow logically. But you can sort of get, <laughs> again, esteem-wise, while well, you're either for this team or you're against it. And if you're for, if you're for uh, yeah. ending apartheid, then you can't be against anyone who's trying to end apartheid. Um, so the People's War is this tragedy that we overlook it. But So here's a third phrase, the liberal slide away. And this comes from Jill Wenzel, who, who was sort of co-founder or head of the Black Sash. Uh, her husband was really hardcore uh, sort of anti-apartheid guy. She was really hardcore anti-apartheid guy, girl, whatever, person. Um, they, I mean, they... they just, uh, just for the record, I think that guy is a... Uh, is a gender, gender neutral, neutral term. term. 
Yes. Me too. I kind of agree. Which is so, why I get absolutely incensed when some woke moron is like, oh, guy, oh, don't call us guys because then you're excluding the woman. Like, <laughs> I hear you. Get a, get, get a life is the first response. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm, I've clearly been hanging out sort of in Westcliff for the last few days. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've been, I'm feeling oversensitive. Uh, but the point is that 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 Jill put in the hard hours. She did good work. She put her she put her body on the line many many mm. times. Uh, she 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 was a real devotee. She was really dedicated, tenaciously to overthrowing apartheid, uh, and influential and important. And at the same time, she starts to get disillusioned, and so she tells her friends at the her colleagues at the Black Sash, you know, I need to write a book about what's going on here, and some of it's going to be critical. And they say, well, okay, that's fine. Um, but the only group that she can find to publish it eventually is the Institute of Race Relations. And Jill Wenzel's The Liberal Slide Away is like one of the canonical texts of the IRR, especially in the transition period. And The Liberal Slide Away is the story about basically people, I would say in esteemed terms, who get on Team Black side and then kind of do so to such an extent that they get off sort of Team South Africa, Team Humanity, Team Classical Liberalism, and so on and so forth. They and and I and I use the team language because it becomes a it becomes the case as she details that sort of if you criticize uh, some black figures, whether you're black or white, you 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 get denounced as a racist, even though racist, yes, yeah. anti-black, even though you're like just you know mountains of evidence to or to as show that's or as one crazy. idiot on Twitter said, you haven't learned to love the black child, which is hmm. such a creepy phrase. Anyway. <laughs> Yeah, dude, team black, team white, like, oh man, these race teams are really are the worst. Um, no. But the, the here's my thing. My kind of pushback a little bit, and this is not something that she's not aware of, nor is it something that John Kane Berman was, wasn't aware of. You, you know, John Kane Berman writes, for example, about um, when he was friends with Steve Biko and, uh, you know, sort of, had was making a name for himself and Biko was doing amazingly well and John was sort of in university leadership and they had this question okay the black consciousness guys want to have a student union that is exclusively black and John was like okay this goes against my principles like I I don't think that there should be a group that is exclusively anything like that's that's not classically liberal but at the same time i'm hearing their arguments for why they need to do it and they're saying it's not because black people are better than white people morally like because they're inherently victims and white people are inherently evil or anything like that they're just saying um firstly the the pressures that are being applied to us from the outside are so great that the obstacles we face on the inside are basically insurmountable unless we can formulate a group that is exclusively black and get some reason responsive institutional work going from that basis. Because as long as there's a white guy in the room, some people are going to say, oh, if it was a good thing, it's just because the white guy was there. And some people are going to say, if it was a bad thing, you know, it's the white guy leading you to, to the temptations of communism or whatever. Uh, we, and, and that's not just going to be sort of people outside. It's also going to be people inside. Like there are black people who have been so brutalized by apartheid that they're not in a position to to engage reasonably uh, 
with peers that have been elected by the same student body to go forward and do this and and look at the circumstances you know most of the best universities are exclusively white uh you've got prisons being filled chock-a-block with people that are detained without trial you've got laws preventing black people from owning property in most places from elevating themselves to most work positions you know this is hardcore totalitarian racial oppression and right now we just need like a blacks only group to flip and think about that without having to think about what white he thinks without having to deal with the question like are you just saying this because you're white uh and is that kind of compromising our position and john was persuaded by these arguments persuaded to say look you guys do you and we'll work with you when that seems to be appropriate and we're going to criticize you if you if you do uh things that we judge to be harmful but we're kind of going to give you a bit of a free pass from our perspective what you're saying is that there are extraordinary circumstances that demand this situation to push back against the broader situation and okay you know this is 1970s like height of apartheid like wickedness okay here let's do it and then Biko gets killed, you know? How much more serious can it get? Yeah. Um, so it made it makes sense to me. This is this is sort of one of my eyebrow-raising views, is that I think that circumstances can be so extreme that racialism is justified, that uh, uh, team black or team white, I can imagine a situation where team white or team colored or team Indian, where it makes sense to say, you know what, this is our commonality, we're going to organize on that principle. We're going to exclude people, include people, celebrate people, condemn people, cooperate with people, uh, conflict with people on the basis of how they look. Um, if you're if you're on the wrong end of the gun, like, and you're being badly oppressed on the basis of how you look, uh, I think it's justified to push back. And like a Semitic uh, Zionist people's army that gets its act together in in the Third Reich, um, you know, who can say, who could say that, that, that that's not morally justified. You're being so corralled on the basis of your race that but like, at some point with, with all suspensions of, of, shall we say the rules of decency and normal behavior and things just like, and in our pre-show discussion, you, you compared this to the likes of sort of conscription or maybe wartime censorship or something like that. Yeah. Uh, all one has to be all lockdowns. One has to be very careful because <laughs> if you make a wrong move, you can end up entrenching a kind of totalitarianism, uh, yeah. or, or, you know, of, of the kind you're actually necessarily trying to avoid. Um, exactly, exactly. And so this is, and, and that's sorry. that's the line that South Africa unfortunately doesn't seem to have been able to walk entirely correctly. Right? It's part of our exactly, problem. Exactly, dude. And this is why, and this is why Jill Wenzel's book is so important because it's coming out like in the late eighties, like. Uh, Mandela hasn't even been released, you know, this is, this is, so, so petty apartheid laws have almost universally been repealed, um, but grand apartheid laws are still there. And John Ken Berman describes this to the American Congress as like peeling an onion. He's like, you know, the easiest thing to get rid of is, is like whites only beaches and whites only benches and taps and the immorality act. Okay. You can peel yeah, that but... stuff away. The really stupid stuff that we were talking about, the things that made it so obviously insane. But you still have sort of the Land Act or Act about property rights. Uh, you still have employment regulations. You still have this more hardcore stuff. And they said, you've got to whittle that away next. 
and then eventually and you go through a few and then eventually you get to the hardcore which is the population registration act which is the act that sort of defines people by race in the first place um and once you've taken that away then the onion's gone but we can't get to the core of the onion uh immediately because first you have to go through the other outer layers and you know partly this is like just a classic story like you know we've made some progress let's not ignore that um and at the same time, we've got a long way to go. So, like, let's build on our successes. Um, against that, you see the liberal slide away of people uh, saying, you know what, uh, violence is justified still and would be, and they don't really give good qualifications for when it should be turned on and when it should be turned off. Um, the alternative to apartheid is necessarily yeah, better than... It becomes it becomes sort of you know if 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 the ANC is doing it it must be okay kind yeah of thing and this weird idea that the alternative to apartheid must be better than apartheid which is just like so childish that is such a childish vision to think things can't get much much worse like <laughs> unless you are in a concentration camp in a train on route to a gas like, chamber going like Dachau then that's about that's when it reaches can't get worse yeah but there's like a whole long distance between anyway so and that's again that's not an argument for complacency that's an argument to make sure that we change this and change it in a way that's much better you know it's like we're hungry so we're going to cook some meat well are we going to like literally put it in a tub of petrol and set the petrol on fire Hopefully or not. are we going to like fry it or fry it or, you know, there's, there's a very perverted kind of necklacing reference. But, you know, when people are being necklaced, um, then I think it's very seriously important uh, to to say we have to be kept. We have to we have to husband this transition. We have to make sure that it goes. We need a midwife, this baby. You know, we need to we need to catch this baby, not let its head get crushed against a wall, as happened so many times in the Vol Triangle. Anyway, hmm. I think that that sort of discipline. Well, Jill Vensel sort of just describes slowly but surely how the Black Sash and so many other movements find themselves in the position of pretending the ANC is not doing anything wrong and pretending that there's no progress coming from the government side for fear of seeming to legitimize apartheid and 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 she and she paints some pretty particular and horrific kind of consequences like localized consequences where you could have gone from like two to eight and instead you went from like two to one uh and then much later you get to like six or seven so the liberal slide away this is a thing that happened and jill vensel called it at a time that it was the most difficult to call it uh, once Mandela's released, it's kind of a little bit easier for some people. Once uh, the ANC is elected, it becomes even easier to yeah, become because it's clear which way things are going. But then, once it's you, it's clearer. I mean, it was clear at yeah. that stage. I think she only. I mean, she, she she seems pretty clear that she was only really confident to write this because she felt like focusing on what kind of change we get is super important because it's, it's very clear that we are going to get major change. Um, yes. And of course, under the Zuma, you know, under Mbeki, it becomes easier. Under Zuma, it becomes much easier to sort of look back. And yet, it's still so difficult that um, that it, there are very, very few people do it. And you know, most people who don't study, you know, aren't particularly 
uh, empowered, maybe professionally, to to take a special interest in it, are just completely ignorant of the People's War, of the Silent Revolution, or of the Liberal Slideaway. You know, in a, these are three phrases to capture the sense in which, in the sense that most people don't know even what they refer to, the sense in which history kind of stops at the height of apartheid, and in some ways never begins again. Right? It's like there's this causal chain thing where where you can you can find what okay this pothole broke down or this power station is not working what caused that you can go back five minutes and you can go back five years but then often we want to go back all the way to the 1970s uh sort of skipping through the transition and 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 what links in the causal chain there uh uh connect to suboptimal consequences today um so i think it's really important just to flag these canonical texts, the slide away, the silent revolution and the people's war. And we've talked about the second two more. Um, although probably not enough about the silent revolution. Anyway, the point is the liberal slide away has an obverse, which is the liberal slide back where people go from a position where they're so committed to team black, you know, that if someone wins a prize you know, I'm really irritated with the guy who won the Booker Prize, the South African, D Damon Gulmert, who, the South African wins the Booker Prize. What an amazing thing for fiction, for writing a beautiful story about four generations of like terrible white people uh, who keep meeting at funerals every like 10 or 15 years and going from bad to worse. Great. Um, he wins the prize and he thanks it on the behalf, on behalf of all the stories of Africa. What does that mean? <laughs> what? This is just, I can't think of anything else except saying like, okay, there's Team Black and I'm part of that Team Black too in a way. You know, it's like no one is saying thank you on behalf of North America or Asia. <laughs> Why are you saying I'm I'm accepting this award on behalf of Africa? Dude, that guy is not nearly connected yeah. enough with me. But, even yeah, as when a side African. We elect you, King of Africa. <laughs> <laughs> I much prefer Kutia. Kutia said when he won the Nobel Prize, he said, uh, you know, I just wish my mom and dad were here because they would be the most proud of me, of anyone. And so that's kind of who I'm sharing this esteem moment with. And this would this would help them feel better about all those difficult flippant times that I gave them as a kid. Anyway, uh, that's kind of my preference, but to each his own. Um, the point is that this race solidarity is just not a good idea once you've got a stable, um, constitutional, reason-responsive democracy, you know? Then you need to get together as citizens and as all other kinds of things and leave those immutable characteristics in the sort of box of childish silliness that they belong. You know, good for theater, good for poetry, uh, really not good for organizing politics. And I think that the ANC's dropping below 50% is like a grand expression of the liberal slide back. Now, partly the liberal slide back is the splits because some people have gone from like ANC to EFF. But even if you add the ANC and the EFF together, in 2019, you add them together and they've got a super majority. This time, they've got like 55%. You know, they've taken a big knock. And, and the parties that have come up, they don't agree about everything. And there's very different visions. 
but there's kind of, it feels to me like there's a bit of a liberal slide back. And it also feels to me like that's the case in a lot of personal conversations that I've been having with people uh, who each, each person kind of has their own story about when they basically came to be disillusioned with the idea or the constellation of ideas that like the ANC is the sole authentic representative of blackness as it had been characterized in the UN forever, that, um, that criticizing the ANC makes you racist, that generally for, for one person to criticize someone else of a different race makes them racist, that we, uh, that we need to show fealty or loyalty to this particular version of the liberation project in order to really be protecting liberty itself. Um, and in a way, it's also been interesting to hear about some changes in that regard inside the Democratic Alliance, hmm. uh, which which is, you know, kind of done slightly better than in 2019, but much worse than 2016. And it's a conundrum to try and figure that out. And the, and the thesis that stands up to me is that the DA, you know, is a succession of the DP. It's a succession of the PFP. It's, 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 it's really grounded in these good non-racial values. And then it comes to a point where it thinks that a white person will never be elected president in this country, that a black person will be, and that the thing to do, therefore, is to take a young charismatic black preacher with very limited experience in politics uh, and parachute him all the way to the top so that the DA has a black face. You know, again, it's, it, and you can feel, I can feel how that empathy that I have for John Kane Berman in that conversation with Steve Biko about like a BC uh, blacks only um, student union I can feel how, okay, like I kind of don't like that, but okay, I kind of get that. I can feel how someone could think exactly the same thing in 2012 right. or 13 or wherever and, it was. When and and the, des the desperation to, to believe was, was intense. Um, my, my father describes people talking about uh, Musi as literally the one, the one who will lead us to the promised land. And, uh, <laughs> that's a dangerous dangerous situation to be in yeah dude it's tough man and and politics is a team sport eh mm. like that party is a team and then you think that you've got a superstar at the obama of soweto and he's going to take you all the way there and you think okay but what am i doing here like am i have i become kind of racist like i think only am i saying that only black people should be allowed to like run for leadership positions. No, I'm not really saying that. It's just other people think that. So I'm kind of going along with that. Uh, and, and I think that anyway, so I think a lot of, I think that's a, a, that's an example of a liberal slide away. Right. And to say it's a liberal slide away, you can, you can still argue about whether it is the right or wrong thing to do. You can still say, well, look, the, the circumstances are so extraordinary that it's justified, but also by the way, the reason that this person is being elevated is not that far out. Like it's not that far out to have two political candidates that are alike in all ways, but one's better looking, one's more telegenic. And so right. you're like, well, let's go for that one. Or one. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's worth saying that. So while, you know, Moosey's race was definitely part of his elevation. It also, he is 
an incredibly talented, uh, charismatic dude. Uh, Absolutely. They, and and that that was also there. I mean, there were also legitimate reasons to elevate him. He's good. He's smart. He's got that little tooth that perks out with like a little glint of hope. And it's just like, I don't know. He's like, right. he looks like a jolly, um, but like wise beyond his years kind of young he, no, man. He looks like he looks like a president is what is what he does exactly exactly yeah and and so, that's like <laughs> never under, underestimate that <laughs> yeah yeah so anyway so the liberal slide back i don't know i feel like i feel like this is a good uh just a just a good pair of words to weld together and think about uh because it has been happening this like the silent revolution like the people's war like the liberal slide away. This is one of those things that's been happening in a big way across this country. Hmm. And I don't think it gets enough attention. And I think it's difficult for us to give it professional attention because we spend so much time like fending off critics from sacred spaces, from, from terrain that really shouldn't be obstructed. So when people are making arguments for expropriation without compensation, we we are confronting those arguments with evidence and syllogisms. Right, but we, and so we on. do we do we. I mean, that's not entirely true. We do still try to uh, show that people don't are not entirely on board with this thing. I mean, that's why we talk about our polling all the time, right? It's exactly to say, look, you know, people are actually pretty close to the liberal slide back. They have a lot of things that are compatible with the liberal slide back. Dude, so I'm not saying I, I I wasn't saying that we don't do it enough. I was saying that it's hard for us to do anything other than tackle our enemies. But <laughs> right, but we do do it. We do sort of speak to speak to those people on the liberal slide back and speak about what they're thinking and saying to our, our pollsters. And even though that has gotten less attention at my time at the institute, like I've seen how over the last couple of years. Each time we do a new poll, like slightly less media coverage. Um, mm. And it was off a very high base. Like we were getting really good numbers of op-eds and radio opportunities and TV opportunities. Uh, it's coming down. The media's quality, I think, is dropping in recent years. Uh, as, but I'm as so the... proud of that work, man. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Like we, we, we're fighting into a hostile environment, but there is little liberal slideaways happening left and right. And look, talking about the, the media the media you know peter bruce the there's media. an example peter bruce has definitely been on a liberal slide back in the <laughs> Ramaphosa and well. i don't think that's because he's wisened up i always predicted that he would do this because i thought that he was just faking his ramaphoria so that it could seem credible to his audience and then and then be like the first critic but uh i don't think he's the only one you know I, we saw a piece today on the liberal fight back group by Monli makanyi yeah, some problems there but he's like Dude, he's. I think he's on the liberal slide back. People he's are tentatively putting their feet down. Yeah, you can. You can smell it. Part, of it. part of it is just a raw power thing, which is that a lot of people in the mainstream, whatever the mainstream is, creep to power. They they worship at its altar, and the ANC has been shown to be a lot less powerful than everyone had assumed, and. That means that uh, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of impetus all uh, all of a sudden for everyone to start saying, well, you know, I've never actually really backed the AMC, uh, and I think that will accelerate over the next couple of years. Dude, I think a lot of it's that, but I think a lot of it is like 
people who go to work, who go to uh, socialize and just for the most part have good non-racial interactions with people of the same race, with people of different races. Um, when race comes up, it's like fairly easy to talk about in, in sober and judicious ways. Also fairly easy to joke about like amongst kind of friends or people, you know, like there's a sense of trust. It's like, well, okay, here's a joke to you. You know, I think that then gets confronted by the youth, by our generation, by the fallist movement, by a kind of political impetus from the upper echelons as Zuma takes it's over from Becky. <laughs> Do that 2008, 2009. It is, it is a time where I think a lot of people, as it was happening in the mainstream, like a lot of people's uh, gatherings, you know, South Africans like to gather around a fire under the stars. I think a lot of that got a little bit more tense. That was definitely my experience. And like a lot of people that I've spoken to, so they, they don't think about it like that. And then they think back and they're like, you know, actually there was that fight at that bribe where like people just, just like always kind of disagreed about politics, but got along. And then it just ended with this person calling that other person a racist and then storming out. But, you know, like the person was saying they don't like BE and or something like that, you know? Um, and I think that like the EFF's plateauing and the, I don't know, what can I say? The vibes that, that, I'm getting from my rural visits. It's like the they're not maturing in a super stable way and they're not replacing their numbers amongst the youth very well. And as people get jobs and like get along with it, those who can, people kind of soften up and they look back. Like I was talking to someone yesterday who said, dude, I'm like 35. When I was 25, I voted for the EFF or 27. Like, and now that I look back, I'm like, wow, my adolescence <laughs> extended past my teens. <laughs> I didn't really know what I was doing. I wasn't like, you know, part of it was just ignorance, but part of it is like, well, that ignorance is childish. Like being an adult, like I need to know, we're like talking about the elections. And I'm like, I've been trying to think about the elections and vote because, because this matters. And it matters not just to show up. It matters to kind of show up informed. And I'm mm, embarrassed yeah. that I didn't do that before. So mm, I think part of it is about the ANC, but part of it is about people's attitudes to race. Now, the flip side of it is, of course, that in our polling, we see, you know, one of the data points that we don't really like to talk about, the sort of bad news data point, um, that in 2012, I think, or 2013, our polling showed that 30% of South Africans said uh, South Africa is now a country for blacks and whites must take second place. That's a direct quote. So like 30% right. agreed and 70% disagreed. And then that climbed to like 70, 60% agreed by 2018, including a quarter of white respondents, which is why you must always remember that like <laughs> being on team black has nothing. To, it's not how you look. It's just, you know, there's a good <laughs> test case. If you think right. whites must take second place and this is a country for black people, then that's the team that you're on. Okay, that's fine. Let's talk about it. Let's see if we can get you on the liberal slide back. Let's see if we can drill down and see if that's what you really believe or if that's just what you say at parties to kind of fit in. Is, is that your way of getting girls? Is that something that is really just like an anger that you have at, at when you see beggars and it makes you angry because, because it's not a good life and it's not a good society that is like 
tolerating so much of this harsh, harsh poverty? Are you are you taking that anger and actually just following a meme and saying this? So my enemy is white monopoly capital. Is that what you're doing? Okay, let's talk about whether that makes sense. Did let's get the liberal slide back accelerated. I mean, I know this is what our mission is, but I feel like this is a good week to to just reflect on that mission and and see a, a very good step in the right direction. Um, mm. I think that, and you know, who knows what comes next? Sometimes this yeah, this well, is that this is actually the problem is that we are. It's been a good step. Uh, and we should be very happy about that step, but we are not anywhere close to the end of this road yet. Right. And we are going to have to do a lot of struggling before we get there, unfortunately. Uh, and that's not great, but that's just how it is. Yeah, one day the Institute of Race Relations will be superfluous, <laughs> excepting in textbooks for, you know, how to save a country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's let's not get ahead of ourselves first we have to win <laughs> yeah no, I, unfortunately i don't know i i sometimes still think that i might live to see the day but oh you know you never know maybe yeah uh look south africa i i can't think of a single country except for i don't know afghanistan maybe that's just kind of been <laughs> terrible forever. <laughs> Look, for anyone who's just joining this podcast, Nicholas gave us an hour-long like lecture on, on on why that's probably a fair enough statement, and and very unlikely rock, which was at its time center of center of civilization for 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 a couple thousand years. Yeah. Uh, uh, when you start to think about the Bronze Age. Your mind actually bends because of how long ago it was and how long it lasted mm. uh which are these two interesting things. you know maybe one day we must talk about the i don't know if we i think i may have mentioned it before but this this is weird apocalyptic event called the bronze age collapse mm. and no one is entirely sure why it happened but basically all of the first civilizations civilization version 1.0 fell wow. over dude isn't one of the spooky yeah, it's one, one of the theories so many of yeah. our myths and legends have this idea of like lost civilizations because mm. they literally were. <laughs> mm. 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 Did the wasn't the one theory that like like e like evil people came on snakes over the oceans? And yeah, then, so there's the like brought the, death the, and plague. Yeah. So so there's versions of that, but there's also the uh uh the more the the, the uh, what are they called? The sea people. This that's what I'm and saying. These, the sea people. Yeah, and these were people who came from. We don't really know. <laughs> this is actually part of the problem. But they arrived and they proceeded to mess everyone up, and they definitely contributed to this collapse of civilization. But no one knows by how much. Mm. Uh, it's, it's it's sort of but you know our records of that time are these kind of weird post-apocalyptic uh, letters so there's like a letter from some egyptian or hittite governor to the king saying you know the enemy is at the gates it's like have you ever watched you remember the lord of the rings right mm. remember when they're uh, in moria 
and Gandalf finds the book, which is the last record of the of the Moria expedition by the dwarves to retake Moria. And he starts reading, you know, the sort of end passages, we cannot get out. It, mm. That's exactly how these Bronze Age letters kind of feel. And it's very mm. spooky. Mm. You're, in, you're in the tombs. You're like, the, the, the bodies know, have like rotted away to, to dust. And these marks are just left of, of like true catastrophe. Yeah. There, yeah. There's actually another one of that that happens much later in history when the uh, the Britons who have been abandoned by the withdrawing Roman legions write to the emperor and they, they have this great line, uh, the barbarians push us to the sea, the sea pushes us to the barbarians and everywhere we are slaughtered. <laughs> and the emperor said, oh, I'm terribly sorry to hear that, but I'm afraid we don't have anyone available to take your call. <laughs> <laughs> dude i mean a later version although the, i suppose the opposite version in a way is lord gordon uh who's stuck in Khartoum, and he went to go and put down the mahdi revolution and he kind of gets stranded sort of where the blue nile and the white nile meet deep in the sudan and he's writing these letters which sort of have to go up like a series of ferries and then carried by horsemen and then up the nile and then across the oceans and into the uk but he's stuck there for so long, it's like months and months, it gets into over a year, that these letters make it to the Brits and they send their expeditionary force and it's really slow and they send things back and they've got like telegram wires that they can set up on the hustle. And um, so the British press is putting this stuff out and the British public gets to read these sort of installments of what it's like to be surrounded on all sides and holding the forts and eventually um, to be wiped out. And in that case, it's, you know, the, the barbarians are at the gates. The desert is at our back. And the right. desert pushes this way and the barbarians push us that way. And then the end, we are all slaughtered. And, you know, okay, so these moments come. Another theory about the um, that Bronze Age collapse is that basically there was a failure to enact debt forgiveness. There's a, a financial crisis. And everyone revolted. And that part of the reason the jews do pretty well afterwards is this sort of like seven year forgiveness thing and that that turns out to be much more common um in the sort of next to the fertile crescent area uh around the, the mediterranean in that period where property rights get pretty ruthlessly defended but they're badly asymmetrical because they're not real property rights you can own people as property and stuff like that um so it doesn't work out well when you've got slaves, a property rights system. There's a fun fact. Uh, and so what you end up doing is having regular debt forgiveness to stop not just slave revolts, which are actually relatively rarer, but revolts led by upper class people who were indebted, were so indebted that they kind of no longer saw the purpose of protecting this regime. They were like, dude, as long as you guys are in charge, Every time I make it a bag of gold, I have to give like all of it away and keep one coin. So you know what? Like right. I'm gonna uh, keep you. It's interesting about those societies that were very communist in a sort of sense, in the sense that they had a centrally planned economy, uh, with a palace oh, the price setting and yeah, price setting, uh, everything flowing through the state in terms of trade, that kind of thing. And that's one of the tariffs through the reasons market, we yeah. know about these people is because we have their written records of these financial systems of mm. these uh the trade systems where 
you literally have, you know, tablets written in some ancient language saying, all right, three pieces of wheat, two cows, this goes to this person. <laughs> it's quite interesting stuff. And they, and they kind of centralized everything literally in a big palace. Mm. Uh, and those palaces are some of the few things left behind by these civilizations, uh, these kind of big uh, stone structures. The Mycenaeans are one of them there. You can see their palaces are still kicking around in Greece, although much decayed. Yeah, and they're basically bureaucrats' offices, you know, yes. with like <laughs> tax records and tariff rates and <laughs> debt records right. from the state. <laughs> yeah, and in a way, and in a way, I mean that theory. I I, I don't think you know. Then there's like plague versions, you know. Yeah, there's also climate change stuff as well, and all sorts of things. So it's yeah. Uh, as 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 I often say. Uh, I think we should avoid monocausal explanations. And a lot of academics have fought tooth and nail trying to sort of literally kind of calling each other names and fighting in public saying, oh, it was this one, no, it was this one. Well, no, actually it was probably, um, <clears throat> it's probably both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if, you, and if you think about it, like, yeah, you combine a couple of those, oi, oi, oi. Right, and I that's, think... that's, I think someone, someone even tried to synthesize all of them with a fancy academic term. I think he called it a, Catastrophic system collapse, and that's basically you know, a, any system can take a certain amount of pressure, and then it, then once enough things go wrong, the whole thing goes pop, all at once. Dude, and it is funny how sometimes the rain doesn't fall; it pours. Like you, you, um, and James were telling me about the the collapse of the Byzantine Empire because we discussed that in last week's podcast with France, mm. uh. And oh, dude, remind me how it goes again. Yeah, so so basically, in a, it's the five sixties. It's been called by some historians the worst decade in human history. Uh, there, so there's this massive war between the Byzantines, who are sort of resurgent. So that's they're trying to retake Italy for the Eastern Roman Empire because the Goths have been ruling it for sort of uh, almost a hundred years. And unofficially and, before that, because the Goths had become like the right, right, and the Goths are kind of kind of ruling it already before that. And they fight this really, really destructive war where they go on. Like one of the things that happens during that war is the aqueduct that feeds water into Rome is cut and it's never repaired uh, during one of the sieges. So can you imagine? Claudius builds that even before <laughs> the four great emperors, and. <laughs> Like 500 years later, it gets cut off never again. It's terrible. Yeah, it doesn't get repaired. And the like running water is absent from Rome until like the 1890s or the 19th or the 20th century or something like that. So it was a big deal. So that war goes on. And there's other stuff going on around the Mediterranean that's also pretty destructive. And then they say, and we don't know entirely why, it's probably a volcano going pop. Might have been an asteroid. But there is, in Europe at least, possibly elsewhere, no summer for like two years. Two years, yeah. Because the sun is covered in, in dust. So the crop and, and harvests they, fail and the and, and agrarian economy famine. is so huge. Yeah. And what does this cause? It causes rats <laughs> to leave their uh, sort of swamp dwellings in, in, I think it's the Nile Delta, and go into the towns to look for food and warmth. And what do those rats have on them but fleas? And those fleas carry the bubonic plague. And the first big outbreak of bubonic plague happens in Europe. And for a long time, historians didn't realize how bad this thing was in the 1650s. They thought it was a smaller outbreak. They weren't sure if it was bubonic plague. 
then they started to find mass graves. Wait, hold on. 1650s? 650s. 650s. Six, six, yeah. uh, six or 560s. Hold on. No, I think it's the 560s. 560s. Sorry. It just sounds like 1650s. That. And I, I just want to emphasize that because usually when we think of the plague, we think of the medieval era. You know, like 1100s, 1200s, 1300s. It's been like 600 years later. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, so, five, it's like the 560s, 550s, somewhere around there. Uh, so they have this massive thing up, like the, the historians start to dig up these mass graves relatively recently, and they also then do DNA testing. They find out that it actually is the bubonic plague that caused this, this terrible so get, thing. And like half of Europe's population dies. It's really bad. So you get this like series of things. The one is that Rome falls. Then it's kind of being run by like a patronage network, bunch of militant warrior types, protectors. Uh, then you get like the closest thing to a good idea liberation, actually making things much worse, destructive infrastructure right. stuff, but also trade routes broken down. This is a fairly like urbanized area, so it really depends on that stuff. And then you get plague because the rats are being frozen out of their lakes and driven into the sort of <laughs> kitchens of sweet ladies just trying to make dinner for their children. And right. so then you get the plague and that creates the sort of vacuum of power so stress. huge. Yeah. Well, then, it, then, the, then the Romans and the Persians go to war and it's a really, really long, bad war. It also lasts like, you know, two decades. And the Romans eventually win it. And then... <laughs> A very charismatic guy who we don't know that much about except through a book called the Quran emerges from the desert and his followers lead a massive number of raids into both the Persian and Eastern Roman empires and completely collapse the Persian one and destroy half the Roman one. And uh, that's the rise of Islam. So like the whole world changes and it's all due to these kind of, you know, one thing after another shocks yeah. to the system. And it's, it's just, this is just an important kind of buildup that like fills in such a gap in like my sort of uh, teenage memory or university days, honestly. For like, some reason, this period which is, is like, not covered well in pop history in, at all. Yeah. And you watch the videos, you see those time-lapse videos and you like of different things rising and falling across the map. And then somewhere like in the early 700s, you see Islam, the green thing sort of start in the Middle East. And then like, just like take over the map like nothing has done since the Mongolians. And you're yeah. Like, no, no, it's before the Mongols. So it's like literally until nothing like that until that point. Mm. It's fast. Mm. Maybe the Romans are comparable, but that's about it. It just goes. And you're like, what led to that? And in, and in a lot of ways, it brings a lot of good. Um, so there's, you know, there's... Uh, there's a kind of restoration of structures, of communication, uh, but good also, things for non-racialism. It, yeah. it also, uh, there was this historian called Perrin, and he came up with the Perrin thesis, which was very confusing to me when I learned about it in university, because I thought, kept thinking the professor was saying parenthesis. Which makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, that this actually sort of brings about the end of the Mediterranean world because even though the, the Arab invaders kind of at first enrich and take on board and fund with you know all of their raiding and looting, the the, the Greek sciences and the, the sort of Coptic church and all these things, um, and the and the and the old and Eastern Roman bureaucracy. Yeah. Right. And they and they they take, you know, they learn they they quickly adapt and 
learn astronomy and stuff from the Greeks and take it even further and they import stuff yeah. from India. That's all cool. But they also create this sort of antagonistic relationship between the eastern, southern, and northern and western Mediterranean, right? And that yeah. lasts for like until, until now. today, <laughs> pretty much, right? Until uh, we'll let you know when it's over, but that one won't be and, over in our lifetimes. Like <laughs> exactly, and this is a this is a break between the because uh, the Roman world, the Mediterranean, was the Mare Nostrum, RC. Right, that's what the Romans called it. And it was like the center of the whole empire. It was the place, it was the path by which stuff traveled. Because mm. back mm. in the ancient world, it's very difficult to move goods around, um, except by boat. Yeah, so, the oceans take care of friction and, and it, axle it was, problems. It was the wheel really is a important. great invention. The axle is really a bit of a Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so because of this, you know, the, tension basically between the Christian Europe and Arabic and Islamic North Africa and the Middle East, that trade network, which enriched the Mediterranean world breaks down and instead it's replaced by, you know, trade definitely continues, but there's now an awful lot of really big slave raiding that goes on where the two sides are attacking each other forever. And to use a Nick phrase, there's a lot of higgledy-piggledy. There's a lot of higgledy-piggledy. Uh, I mean, the, the slave trading stuff is so bad that, like, you know, even by the time of, even when Europe become, starts to become really ascendant, you know, the time of Shakespeare, <laughs> there's yeah, occasionally uh, North Robinson African Crusoe. Robinson pirates. Crusoe makes right. it to the island because he's a sailor and in his first trip he gets caught by some slave raiders and then be becomes probably someone's sort of boyfriend for a while. And yeah, then, a couple, a couple, a couple million people are, are, are from North Africa and from Europe are enslaved by the other side for, for yeah. literally hundreds of years. This goes on, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so you know, in the short, in the sort of medium term, it causes some good, but then it also set up this antagonism, which we literally still, and it Dude, all sort of follows from, from if you if you get accidents. Victor Davis Hansen's theory is that. Uh, you know, if you look at European history from like two and a half thousand BC till like the, let's say, 13, 1400s, uh, the Mediterranean Europeans generally much more sophisticated. There's some exception with the Gaelics, um, but that's because, again, they're like an island seafaring type thing. Um, but the, the sort of landmass, okay, let's just be honest, the Germans, like the Germans <laughs> and the Russians are like barbarians in the forest and it's very hard to invade them and you kind of leave them be and then they sort of become uh th those geographical regions become home right. to some of the greatest during, growth yeah, during the roman period the center of 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 uh of the sort of european world is the mediterranean and yeah. then in the in the after the middle ages it shifts to big northern europe it and then the problem is France, and look Denmark, at napoleon Egypt look at germany like when they have their totalitarian moments they're trying super hard to be romans and they've got their eagles and their bannermen and they're like you know they've cast themselves as new caesars in russia they even call themselves tsars uh literally mean caesar <laughs> mm. so it's like you know in a way instead of that empire falling and then new empires building that make exactly the same mistakes because we've had to start from tabula rasa Use an old Latin phrase, the blank slate. Uh, we we could have you know, skipped the whole series of nightmares things, just got some reason responsive governments going, 
uh, let all kinds of new religions spread, but you know, in a world that uh, in a world that's better governed. Anyway, I think I think what this all speaks to is is the kind of pendulum swing. Uh, yes. These liberal slideaways and these liberal slidebacks, and yeah, and I suppose the warning from history is that um, sliding back ooh, sometimes uh, is is not very pretty uh, because sometimes you know it looks like it's going that way, but actually, um, just a new version of slideaway is being achieved. But most people. Give them a chance, give them a bit of peace, give them room to kind of do what they want at least some of the time and do what's good for others some of the time in a way that gets respected and rewarded. Like, I think most people, given the chance, slide back to, to the good stuff. And we're in a better position than any of those civilizations or countries or whatever to, to, to put pressure on our leaders uh, to stop them from... Well, yes, I'm like driving wages to people. Yeah, dude, that's <laughs> huge. Like and we insult. did. And it, and it's, like, it's an amazing thing, man. Dude, a few months ago, it looked like we might not vote until 2024. That was a serious possibility. And but thanks to now it's all, just all, all the good guys and a couple of the bad guys too, standing up on one side and, and, and taking them to court and fighting the battle, uh, we don't have to live with that fear. We got to do it, and and those of us who chose to do it have their little fingerprints, you know, tattoos that fade away. Oh, and the bad and, guys who and the bad guys who who helped were the ATM, who I don't trust a lick. I think uh, they're pretty obviously uh, out outpost of the Zuma camp, and yet on this one they backed the good guys. <laughs> Dude, they were so good. They didn't just back the good guys. They like made really good arguments in court. They didn't just make really good arguments in court through their council they made really good arguments on tv and radio like through their political figureheads <laughs> it's amazing yes. it's amazing dude my I... you mustn't underestimate one's opponents because the atm i think are actually quite clever and they, they did okay during the selection considering they're a tiny party with like no real you know explain the atm to me as a uh... yeah <laughs> i don't I don't if you like either. you like Zuma and but you also didn't like like I think if you were part of the faction, here's an interesting thing about Jacob Zuma. So Jacob Zuma gets appointed president and the business day says, you know, people are underestimating how friendly this guy is to big business. Like when he puts on the loincloth and he's got several wives around him and lots of cattle and praise singers, then he might seem like he doesn't understand basic market forces. But when that guy puts on a suit and comes into a boardroom where you sit next to him in first class flying to the UK, as one of my friends did, like, dude, he totally gets all of it. He's, he's, you know, you, you've got to distinguish like the symbolism from the, from the practicalities. And at the level of symbolism, like it's all gravy, excepting for when he said that he showered after he had sex with like his almost niece, uh and that's was she had his, yeah. th that was not good like he's definitely done some bad stuff but compare that as a symbolic yeah, failure so to becky's actual yeah but good. talk about becky's actual failures when it comes to hiv and becky was much more destructive on that particular topic yes yes no so, definitely no, no argument yeah. you know this was like the rationalization for zuma and and look it was so clearly hogwash in so many ways but but there was a grain of truth to it which is borne out by this, 
Jacob Zuma doesn't say anything good about expropriation without compensation until 2017 at his State of the Nation address. And he says some nice things and they and they try and table it and it gets voted down. Dude, it gets argued down by Jeremy Cronin, an actual communist. A card carrying SACP guy is like, no, dude, this idea of like expropriation of our compensation, that's outrageous. You can never do that. You have to bear in mind what the consequences will be, not just of capitalist countries that punish us through sanctions and trade deals that they break down, but also domestically, investors send their money overseas and our people need work and how they're going to work unless there's some capital to mix with their labor. Dude, communists can make very, you know, you can use Marxist language to make very good arguments. And that's where Cronin was. So this thing of like, no, he didn't really want EWC, but he was just saying it. Uh, is kind of like a, a, a critique applied to Ramaphosa that's never made sense to me. Because maybe he had to say it at Nazareth because he just got elected. But once he got elected, he had incumbency powers. And he could have chosen who's on his presidential advisory committee. He could have put Dr. Anthea Jeffrey there. You know, he could have put like <laughs> people that are clearly good and that would have made arguments that actually benefit poor South Africans. Uh, but he didn't. So... I don't see how that argument works for Ramaphosa, but I do see how it worked for, for Zuma. Zuma passed the like free university thing when it was kind of clear he was already on his way out. Like the line was like, dude, I don't think this guy really thinks it's a good idea, but he's like setting up a problem for the next guy because he's kind of like a narcissist and like wants to as make we, sure. As we call it the hospital pass. <laughs> yes. And like <laughs> he does that once and then you're like, will he do it again? And then the guys who are trying to trade up to take over his position, he's got some leverage over them. Like, you need to make sure that you give me immunity, give me a secret deal, make sure you don't come after me or my friends. Uh, and if you're not prepared to give me that assurance now, I'm just going to give more problems to you on your plate by appeasing the useless diehards that are still in the party that are completely non-pragmatic and ideological. I'm going to give them what they're calling for uh, because that's going to make me seem more popular and you're going to deal with the, like, upshot. So this is politically just very good for me and very crap for you unless you give me what I'm looking for, which is some kind of immunity. That argument makes sense to me. I'm not saying for sure that happened, but that argument of he didn't really believe in EWC, he was just putting it out there as like an attempt to appease a faction, which he now, now it's gone from horse trading to like, guys, I'm giving you this, you know, this is really what sets Julius Malema up to come back to the Tea Party when Zim is about to be arrested and show political fealty. Uh, and that's just not the EFF. It's also, you know, people within the ANC like Ace Mahashule, Batabile Tlamini, and so on, who find it easier to 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 be on the Zuma faction when the Zuma faction has clearly defined itself as like being for a policy that he's got no good reason to actually believe in, that he doesn't actually believe in, that he's way smart enough to know is stupid. Uh, so we get taken by the guy who does it as an excuse, but and then we get taken over by the guy who's like kind of believes it much more, but it seems the other way around because of our a naivete and our, our, our sort of our gullibility, you know, how, how weirdly we, 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 we got it wrong on both ends uh, with the sort of Zulu loincloth effect, overestimating and underestimating. But I don't know. I mean, it's like, do, do, do these elections presage something about uh, a national policy shift in terms of EWC? I think we're on the. I think we're on the clock. I think it's going to get. Yeah, it's going to get worse definitely before it gets better. But uh, maybe, but maybe if the if the ANC and the EFF both collectively drop below fifty percent, and even if they drop below two thirds, which they would do 
as they're going now. But if they follow the trend, even together, they wouldn't have 50% at the national elections. Mm. Then maybe parliament steps in in time for like, okay, if something bad gets passed now, you can court battle it to slow it down. And then parliament steps in to say, you know, uh, we're actually, if the law passed, we're going to revoke it. Or if the law hasn't passed yet, we're going to table it. I feel like there's that gap. And I focus on that gap because I think it's, uh, an except it's an existential, like exceptionally important policy, but it's definitely not the only one. You can go down the line with all the other things that, that, that really matter. And that maybe that if we follow this trend, like, I don't know, action essay is weird because I don't know how it votes. Cause I don't really know. I don't think they know yet to be honest. <laughs> yeah. But I think they will figure out who they are actually in the next couple of, uh, months and uh, years but i don't uh, see them voting for ewc i see them voting against it i don't think i don't think i'll vote for ewc and that's the important thing really yeah um yeah you never know there are some bad hombres there but yeah i think it's pretty unlikely that they'll do something like that because they know that that would be utterly stupid and suicidal electorally mm. uh, <laughs> whatever they think they are their voters don't think they're into that yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> if they tried to swing that by their voters, their voters would be like, mm, "What? Yeah, no." How did we? Okay, so what? we're definitely going back to the DA, like, or whatever. Yeah, no, it would, it would kill, it would kill them with half of their voters in about thirty seconds. Uh, anyway, but we shall see. Uh, they they have an opportunity now to 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 uh, show themselves off and define who they are. Um, I would like to just say as a as a data point to our earlier thing about the ATM. They are actually now the 11th biggest party in the country in terms of the results. Uh, they got 0.58% of the vote. Where's COVID? So if they got that... Uh, <laughs> COVID is at... Um, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. So COPE's at 20th. So the ATM is more important than COPE. <laughs> uh, COPE has countrywide 13 council seats. The ATM has 53. So, yeah. It's amazing. Eh? <laughs> yes. It's amazing. Uh, but anyway, let's call it to a close there because we, you know, yeah. reaching the hour and a half mark, which has suddenly become, for some reason, the length of these episodes. <laughs> one day we'll look back on our own records and see what it is that pipped us over the line of one hour. it was i think i think it was you i remember the exact moment it was like you said no 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 no. we can go a bit longer we can go a bit longer we haven't <laughs> been on for a while <laughs> and that's where it began <laughs> uh do you okay. have any recommendations yeah i do this time i'll go first i yeah i recommend that you sit back and just with all of the worries notwithstanding enjoy the moments we've got a vote and it was a and it was a historic vote and it 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 doesn't get anyone exactly to where they want to be but it opens up new questions that are worth asking and that's great so enjoy it my my more precise recommendation is if you're reflected out and you feel like a bit of exercise paddleball I just played my first game. I've been like chalishing over this uh, at the 
at the YouTube screen for quite a while. It's really popular in Spain and it's been going around the world. It's like kind of a cross between tennis and squash. So it's like squash in the sense that there's like glass around and a cage and if the ball bounces off it, it's still in play. So you like play off the wall and stuff. But it's like tennis, it's like squash if you were facing each other. Like there's a net between you and there's a, and there's a cage around both of you. But with no roof, so you can hit it up off the roof and still like run out the door and try and hit it back. Anyway, it's like I think the easiest. It's kind of as easy to get into as table tennis. Like you don't need a lot of skills getting into it, but there's a huge growth trajectory. If I can judge by the difference between my play and like the good guys I've seen on TV, and it feels like entertaining all the way through. Like it's definitely entertaining as a starter. And I've been watching it for a long time and just got to play my first game at the Johannesburg Country Club, uh, a few jacarandas away. And it was really, really fun. So if you're looking for a fun thing to do, I also know that people are building paddle courts at the Pirates Club in Johannesburg. And my understanding is there's already quite a few in Cape Town and there's like maybe one in Grahamstown. Anyway, so if there's one near you, knock it out. And if there isn't one near you uh, and you feel like building a tennis court, or something like that because you're sort of doing well then think about building a paddle court instead uh because i think they're smaller and easier and like maybe more fun those tennis courts sometimes feel a bit underused so this isn't my recommendation but it's a fun headline i saw it was on fin 24 business insider video captures the moment donald trump accidentally hit a child on the head at a baseball game and then oh, Lord. the sub headline Former President Donald Trump, who claims he almost became a professional baseball player, threw a ball that accidentally knocked a child on the head. Oh, no. Oh, no. I just, I just <laughs> also, very like, the little, the little jab at him in the sub-headline. Yes. It's yes. very, like... <laughs> anyway, as for recommendations. Dude, oh, no, hold on. While you're doing in-betweeners, dude, go, Joe, Brandon. That is such so an let's American go, Let's go, Brandon. Let's, let's go, go, Brandon. Brandon. Um, so wait, I'd recommend wait a, we have to just explain let's go Brandon has gone Mimi in America and it's because there was a NASCAR race you know that funny thing Americans watch where the cars go in circles and burn gasoline and they, they get very excited the one who went quickest um, the guy who won is called Brandon yeah I know dude I think it does I've actually heard it's a great thing to watch live it just looks so silly on TV great live because it's like a party or whatever um, anyway, the guy who wins it is Brandon Brown. And so someone's like CNN dudes, ladies doing an interview with him. And the crowd behind is chanting F Joe Biden. I'm not going to say the word properly because I'm afraid of our thing being deplatformed or whatever. Um, <laughs> and they're chanting, chanting, chanting. And the, it's like not clear if she mishears or she's just hoping that the camera will mishear it. But the hostess says, oh, they're chanting, let's go, Brandon. Uh, so that's how she hears it and reports it. Uh, but that's clearly not what they're saying. So now people right, have so taken the flip side of the sem yeah. semantic game. Yeah. So you, you couldn't wear a T-shirt to work that said F. Joe Biden, but you can wear one that says, let's go, Brandon. And everyone knows what it means. And and then the next part of it is then some dudes like wore some T-shirts and paraphernalia and whatever, sports games, and someone said it. Some crowds chanted it, and uh, that's become like a big deal in American sports politics, which is important because, uh, the, you know, the kneeling thing has, has sort of dominated South African sports politics for a while. Um, 
I'm glad yeah, we're all like... still fighting. I'm glad we're all still fighting over symbols. <laughs> yeah, dude. Sports. The whole point of sports is supposed to be that arena where you're like into athletic excellence and fight over those symbols that are like. No, I mean, if you want, if you want to have politics mixed in with, um, if you want to have politics mixed in with sport, you can become a football hooligan in Europe. You know, where you have like some Serbian uh, football club whose supporters are all like members of some hardline Serbian nationalist movement. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you need to refine it to like Eastern Europe. I think in yeah. almost all of Western Europe, people aren't stampeding each other to death. Although I saw a terrible story in America. Eight people died in a stampede. Um, yes, uh, there, was, uh, there was in, in, in Houston, there was a rap concert and apparently some crazed man stabbed someone in the neck with a syringe full of opioids the guy collapsed then from the opioids i think he's he survived though and this caused people to panic and run away and it caused a stampede so yeah it's very weird um and i'm sure we'll find out more about the next few days yeah. so my recommendation is a channel called ea story uh one word uh and he is a i think he's an estonian or a latvian uh dude and what he does is he makes animations showing the front lines and how the different divisions moved in the second world war and it's just quite interesting because you just get a sense for how sort of things moved and went along uh he also has some other fun videos like brilliant in quotation marks plans to win world war ii and he just goes into how you know what the french strategy at the beginning of the war and stuff is and his videos are pretty easy they're not super long and you just kind of get a sense of you know how things looked on the map because they're animated you actually see how things are moving what's uh, it called again animated uh ea story is the name of the the youtube EA channel story uh and his things are called normally world war ii animated so his most recent one that mm -hmm. came out today is second sino-japanese war 1937 to 1941 uh, and then he's got other ones, World War II animated Germany versus Poland, 1939, World War II animated Western Front, 1944 to 1945, part one, things like that. He's got some other stuff as well, uh, just talking about kind of military history and things like that. Uh, he doesn't have a huge number of channels uh, of videos, but he's, he's, quite a, he's quite a sort of fun, good-natured dude, and uh, he's got a funny accent, so it's good, good watching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's all of the things you need <laughs> yeah 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 and with that um let's call it to a close so have a wonderful week everyone uh, i'm sure you'll only hear this on monday and uh yeah keep the flag of liberty flying <laughs>